2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg, in today for Alexis Madrigal. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout handed drug makers a golden opportunity to improve their tarnished reputations. But for author John Abramson, the pharmaceutical industry continues to put profits over patients. And the current COVID crisis is no different. A family physician and Harvard faculty member, Abramson has been a longtime critic of the industry, working to expose dangerous drugs like the painkiller Vioxx. Coming up on Forum, he'll join us to talk about his new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. That's all coming up next after the break. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. As a longtime family physician, John Abramson became alarmed by the growing influence of drug companies over how doctors do their jobs. Abramson, who also teaches at Harvard Medical School, later became an expert witness in pharmaceutical lawsuits, which gave him a front row seat to the industry's abuses. In his new book, Sickening How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare, Abramson shines a light on the dark underbelly at play in healthcare. Abramson joins Forum to talk about the book and how to reform the American healthcare system. Welcome to Forum, Dr. John Abramson.
3: Thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So let's break this down using our current crisis as as our example, the most relatable. We've been told over and over and over that our vaccines are free, but as you say in your book, they are decidedly not free. So explain that.
3: Well, they are free in the sense that people who get vaccinated don't have to pay for that vaccine. <clears throat> but they're not free in the sense that our federal government is paying uh, for those vaccines and generating enormous amounts of profits. So, in the second year of the vaccine for Pfizer, their profits, their profit margin is going to be somewhere around 75% on their sales of vaccines. To the U.S. government. Um, So uh, it's like each situation that the pharmaceutical uh, industry approaches, they try to maximize, their goal is to maximize the profits that they can extract from Americans and return to investors. And the COVID vaccines are by far the biggest example of that yet.
2: I think the Pfizer vaccine is the most profitable drug ever, correct?
3: Ever, uh, by far. I mean, its sales are uh, going to be about $72 billion uh, in the first two years of vaccine use. And the previous record holder was Humira, which was selling about $20 billion a year. So that's $40 40 billion uh, compared to $72 billion of the vaccine.
2: And I think most people would say that the last two years has been fairly difficult for a variety of reasons, but but it definitely hasn't been very difficult for the pocketbooks of, I think you point out, is it nine? It's nine new vaccine billionaires, and this was on top of eight who were already billionaires. So break down how much the CEOs and and the top executives of these companies made during the pandemic.
3: Well, Leslie, let me preface this by saying. I believe strongly that the real world data shows that the vaccines work. So as we talk about criticizing the way the pharmaceutical industry is approaching this to maximize their profits, I don't want any listeners to think that I'm saying the vaccines are not effective. They are effective. So that said, within the first 15 months of the vaccines, uh, 17 billionaires gained $50 billion in wealth. And um, coincidentally, $50 billion was exactly what the IMF World and the World uh, Health Organization, World Trade Organization um, and World Bank said they needed to get adequate vaccination rates in poor countries. So the $50 billion that went to the billionaires could have provided uh, adequate vaccination rates in the third world and uh, gone a, f- a large way towards protecting Americans from the recurrent uh, uh, viral variants that are coming back like Delta and Omicron. But it didn't happen. And the third world didn't get vaccinated to meet their goals.
2: And not only did they not give their $50 billion to, to help that process, they wouldn't even share their intellectual property, Correct.
3: That's absolutely correct. Um, and um, you can ask, well, why didn't they share their intellectual property with the third world? They're not going to make much money in the third world. The, their, their business model is to sell as much of the vaccine they produce to the first world so they can make the most money. So why not just give it to the third world? They didn't do it. And uh, I think they're afraid that they're going to lose control of their intellectual property. Um, And that fear uh, was greater than uh, their commitment to vaccine equity and to protecting Americans from the increased risk of variants coming back.
2: And why didn't the FDA push them harder on this? Why didn't the FDA, when they signed these contracts with these huge companies, make sure that this intellectual property, that the National Institutes of Health had done most of the research to make this possible? Why didn't the FDA make these companies or ensure that these companies shared their information with these other nations to help stop the pandemic?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. It's not really the FDA's job. They they approve drugs and they <clears throat> determine whether uh, the drugs and vaccines provide uh, more benefit than uh, risk of harm, but uh, Operation Warp Speed was designed to uh, pour money into the drug companies to incentivize them to produce vaccines quickly, and it worked. We Americans got vac- the rate of American vaccination uh, was twice as much as in the European U- Union early. So Operation Warp Speed uh, threw money at the problem, and it worked. And we got vaccines quickly and Americans got vaccines before the people in Europe and other wealthy countries. The problem is that we were, while we were throwing that money at the drug companies to incentivize them to get to work on the vaccines, the U.S. government did not insist upon sharing intellectual property. It was at that level that it should have happened and it didn't. And um, it's inexplicable. That uh, that the U.S. government uh, let all those billions of dollars go out without assurance that there would be global equity,
2: and isn't hiding this, or even or not ensuring that this happened by the government. So hiding the data and then not ensuring that that data is shared only helping the anti-vax agenda. I mean, I would be skeptical of these companies if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't totally on board for vaccines and ending the pandemic. You know, the reputation of these companies is really helping the anti-vaxxers make their argument that you shouldn't trust the drugs coming out of these companies.
3: It certainly is. <clears throat> um, the, um, it, it's, it's almost surreal. Um, Pfizer uh, went to the FDA and requested emergency use authorization for its uh, vaccine for adults. It was a large study, 40,000 people, and there was six months worth of data. There was an advisory committee meeting and the FDA took 108 days to go through the data that Pfizer had supplied to the FDA to make that decision. And the emergency use um, was approved in December of 2020. Um, In August of 2021, the FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer vaccine They had promised to have an advisory committee meeting, but didn't, and they didn't release an update of the data. They kept it secret. So a group of researchers and scientists sued the FDA to release the the data that the FDA had taken 108 days to go through, and the FDA got back to them and said it will take us between 55 and 75 years to release that data instead of 108 days, 55 to 75 years to release the data. A federal judge got involved and uh, the initial ruling was that Pfizer would have to release the data. Uh, And uh, it is now Pfizer has, excuse me, the FDA would have to release the data. And now Pfizer has, uh, has appealed to the judge to join that lawsuit to prevent the data from being released. So anti-vaxxers are going to pick up on this and say, wait a minute, the scientific data has to be belong to the people, especially for a vaccine. And if they're not releasing the data, what's in that data that's so bad that Pfizer will risk its reputation to protect the release of, of that those documents? And um the answer I don't, nobody knows the answer because they haven't seen the data. But I think if Pfizer were completely happy with the data, they would be enthusiastic about releasing it. That said, anti vaxxers who are listening are going to be saying to themselves, well, gee, that proves it. Uh, we shouldn't get vaccinated because we don't know what Pfizer knows about its product. Right. But the bottom line is that the real world data shows that people who are vaccinated and boosted where people who are unvaccinated have 41 times the risk of dying as people who are vaccinated and boosted. So we have real world data uh, that the CDC is putting together that shows how effective these vaccines are. And yet Pfizer refuses to release its data in a timely fashion.
2: And just to clarify another question, I think that anti-vaxxers who might be listening might be having. Is there any data to show that there's also that these vaccines are dangerous?
3: Well, th- that's a complicated question because there's the VAERS data, Voluntary Adverse uh, adverse Events uh, Reporting System data, <clears throat> and there have been increased reports of deaths following vaccination to the VAERS system. Now, this gets a little bit complicated, but it's worth getting into the weeds on this because the CDC's data shows that People who are vaccinated actually have a lower death rate, have about uh, two-thirds lower death rate following vaccination uh, than people who are unvaccinated. So there's no evidence from a broad data set that uh, vaccines increase mortality. There is evidence that people who get vaccinated tend to be healthier people, so they tend to have a lower Uh, non-COVID-related mortality rate after vaccination than people who are unvaccinated. But the VAERS data, which anti-vaxxers are glomming onto to try to make the point that there's evidence of increased risk of death, is probably uh, biased by the concerns of the anti-vax community and the increased reporting of deaths Um, in people who have been vaccinated. But those deaths are not causally causally related. They're not tied to the vaccine itself. They're just deaths that occurred after vaccination.
2: We're talking about the dark side of the pharmaceutical industry with Dr. John Abramson, author of the new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. And we want to hear from you. What are your reactions to what you're hearing? What are your thoughts about how the pharmaceutical companies influence medical care? We're going to get into all kinds of examples of of ways that they have got in there uh, in pretty dark ways. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.
4: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie
2: McClurg. I'm in for Alexis Madrigal, and we're talking about the dark side of the pharmaceutical industry with Dr. John Abramson. He's the author of a new book called "Sickening: How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare." I want to kind of turn slightly back in time when you when you started practicing family medicine. I think this was back in the '80s. The kind of the negative forces that you eventually write about and and reveal were nothing like they are today. So it seems to me that, according to your book, the corruption started to creep in sort of early 90s. What sort of tipped you off that things were changing?
3: Yeah. um, Yeah. So when I started in practice in 1982, I'd come out of a Robert Wood Johnson fellowship um, stud, uh, in family medicine, studying epidemiology, research design and statistics. <clears throat> and we spent a lot of time going over academic articles and never once found an article that we thought was biased by commercial interests. Never. And that was the situation when I went into practice. But as we got into the 90s, Started to become clear that the journals were um, moving towards publishing commercially sponsored clinical trials that favored um, uh, what would become blockbuster drugs, and the com- uh, medical continuing medical education courses that I would go to and the lectures I would go to were increasingly sponsored by uh, the drug companies and the. Um, The uh, academic experts were getting paid by the drug companies. And there was this sense of oncoming commercialism. Uh, And then it was in uh, 2000 and 2001, there were articles about the anti-inflammatory drug Vioxx that just didn't add up. And that's what really got me pointed in this um, direction of of becoming um, an expert in pharmaceutical data and manipulation of data.
2: Share Stacy's story and her experience using Vioxx. This is a a painkiller that was marketed as supposed to be better than ibuprofen because it's not as harsh on the GI tract. So what, what happened to Stacy?
3: Exactly. So, when my first book, Overdosed America, came out in 2004, <clears throat> I had talked about Vioxx. Uh, it was really Vioxx that caused me to leave practice and and dive into this problem of commercial intrusion into the knowledge that doctors rely upon. Um, <clears throat> and um, the book came out in 2004. And just nine days after Overdosed America came out, Vioxx was pulled from the market in the largest drug recall in American history. Um, it wasn't because of my book. It wasn't directly because of my book. Uh, a second study showed that uh, Viox increased cardiovascular problems, but I had written the most recent book and uh, suddenly I was all over the TV. I was, I was the guy that got the calls and was on the Today Show and multiple national shows. And uh, another round of <clears throat> concern occurred a couple months later, Uh, when a study showed that Celebrex increased the risk of heart disease, which turned out not to be a major worry. But I got a note after that second appearance on the Today Show uh, from a woman who said, "Um, please, Dr. Abramson, can you help us? Our daughter died and we don't know what happened. Can I send you the autopsy report and will you get back to me? And I said, of course. And what had happened was that this woman's daughter had been given eight sample tablets of Viox when she had a headache after she had fallen uh, uh, and hit her head. Um, and after taking those eight tablets, one a day, uh, her mother found her dead in her bed uh, from what turned out to be a massive stroke. And Vioxx, had been clearly shown to double the risk, more than double the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots, though that information was covered up in the initial articles that had been published, uh, the initial article that had been published in the New England Journal. So this was an example where this healthy 17-year-old young lady died from a stroke taking a drug that was no more effective than Advil or, 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 or naproxen, Aleve leave over the counter because the doctor hadn't realized that the risk of heart attack and stroke and blood clots was more than double than with the less expensive over the counter drugs.
2: And why didn't the doctor know that?
3: The doctor didn't know that. <clears throat> um, at that point, uh, when Stacy was prescribed that drug in 2004, it was 2 years after the FDA had put out a public statement and changed the label of Viox to say that it had doubled the risk of cardiovascular events. But here's the catch. The New England Journal of Article, the New England Journal of Medicine article that was published in 2000 that didn't include the cardiovascular risk of Vioxx. Um, uh, That article, which claimed to show that Vioxx was safer, even though the FDA now knew it was far more dangerous and made it public that it was far more dangerous, the article from 2000 didn't say that. And the New England Journal of Medicine continued to sell reprints of that article to Merck so Merck could have its sales reps hand out a New England Journal of Medicine article claiming VIOX was safe even after the FDA had changed the label to say the risk of cardiovascular events was doubled by VIOX. So doctors who were seeing drug reps and getting samples of the drug were probably being handed that New England Journal of Medicine article as a reprint that that claimed that viox had an advantage because it was a safer drug when in fact it was far more dangerous.
2: And it's not just doctors who are being duped, you know, as a health reporter that's what I do. When I'm not hosting forum, I'm taught yeah. and I've been taught time and time again to trust the New England, you know, Journal of Medicine as one of the top most elite uh Pieces of medical evidence that we ha- that we have, and so it's it's very scary that I can't even potentially trust these journals. Just one quick question, and then I want to go to callers. During the first five years that Vioxx was on the market, how many people died from that drug?
3: Between forty and sixty thousand people. Wow! And it's so important, Leslie, to understand that what came out in in this VIOX debacle is that the peer reviewers there, there were a um, lot 11 authors, I think, on the article, two worked for Merck and the rest were uh, non-Merck employed academics. The The authors didn't get to see the data and the peer reviewers at the New England Journal of Medicine didn't get to see the data from that study. And still to this day, even though 40 to 60,000 Americans died as a result of taking Vioxx, in large part because it was inadequately peer reviewed, to this day, Peer reviewers do not get to see the underlying data from the articles that they are peer reviewing. So the peer reviewers who are ostensibly certifying the accuracy and completeness of the articles that are published in the journals that you have to trust as a health reporter, the peer reviewers don't get to see the data. And the peer review process is largely a
2: sham. And no one went to jail and they actually made a profit on this drug.
3: it, It. they probably made a profit. They didn't make a big profit. They, they paid out four point seven billion dollars to twenty seven thousand plaintiffs, and they got fined a billion dollars by the uh, by the Department of Justice. So on this one, they may not have. If they made a profit, it was small. But small, the key here, small, but
2: in the millions and billions. Correct. We're not talking yes, small. Yeah, yes, yes. exactly. Okay. Yeah.
3: But the key point is, no one went to jail, and the the Merck scientists knew that the. Uh, cardiovascular events, serious cardiovascular events were doubled by Vioxx. They hit it and no one went to jail.
2: And this example illustrates two of your major points in terms of how do we fix this. One, make sure the data is available to the journals, the raw data, so that the editors and the peer reviewers have that data from the pharmaceutical companies and that there are criminal charges when harm is done. Correct.
3: Correct. And number three is that the United States is alone amongst wealthy countries in not having some formal mechanism of health technology assessment to inform doctors who are trying to get the latest information from all the sources that are available. But we do not have a single go-to source, government or quasi-governmental source, that puts the data together so the doctors can understand what the benefits and risks of new drugs are.
2: So better regulation as well. Well, let's go to, uh, bring our callers in. Let's go to Milton in Tiburon.
5: Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Good morning. Early in the conversation, you talked about the, um, the profitability of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and one thing I find disturbing is that our entire economy is based on a free market economy where all companies are focused on making money, and that's what drives this economy. So uh, I think the profit discussion needs to be much more nuanced. Is Are there excessive profits would be a more relevant question as opposed to are, there, are they making decisions to maximize their profits? Because every company out there, if it's a well-run organization, is going to maximize profits for their company.
2: Well, I think in your book, Dr. Abramson, you kind of point to this in the sense that these companies are actually just very, very good at what they're tasked to do. They're not evil companies. These aren't, you know, evil people behind the reins. Or, or would you argue that that, that that their mission actually is evil?
3: I would. I, I agree with Milton 100 percent that businesses have to make a profit or they won't stay in business. And if managers are not um, generating uh adequate profits, they'll get replaced. But um, there are a couple of issues here. One is that uh, if we go back to Milton Friedman, who was the ultimate free market economist, um, he said that government should really have only three functions. It should preserve law and order, it should ensure that markets work, and it should enforce private contracts. And other than doing those three things, it should get out of the way and let business do its thing, provide services to the public, and the public can decide what they want and what they don't want. Well, if we could bring back Milton Friedman's three criteria, preserve law and order, we just talked about the Vioxx issue where nobody went to jail after 40 to 60,000 people died, and the scientists knew that the risk of death was, uh, the risk of cardiovascular events was doubled and kept that a secret. Law and order was not preserved there. Uh, To ensure that markets work, um, markets can't work when they don't have data. So we need to have the data be a public good, not a private good. Right now, the clinical trial data are owned by the companies and they're not shared with the public. So the public doesn't know what they're buying and the insurance companies don't know what they're buying and the doctors don't know what they're prescribing. So that's not happening. Um, and uh, and uh, similarly, to ensure that contracts are honored, we can't know that contracts are honored because it, the information is so asymmetric with the drug companies knowing what the medical and economic value of their drugs is, but not sharing that data. So we're not fulfilling the three basic functions of government that Milton Friedman said, are legitimate. And if we just did those three things, I'd like to do a lot more things, but if we just did those three things and we uh, people were ad- fairly penalized for breaking the law and ensured that people and doctors knew what they were prescribing and taking and that they were getting their money's worth, then we could let the market play out. But we're so
2: far from that now. Building on that, let's go to Demetrius in Cupertino.
6: Yes, hi, good morning. Thank you for the show. I, uh, I actually, uh, interesting that the gentleman brought up uh, the market. I wanted to uh, also say, I think we are, believe we are um, I believe we are treating cancer right now with aspirin, just, uh, just the symptoms. It's not that the drug companies are doing anything wrong. They are doing what the law allows them to do. And the system has created this, uh, the the laws and rules and regulations written in this country are written for the company, which I have, uh, I have in my, in my sphere, I have rewritten the constitution to say government of the company, for the company, (laughs) by the company. So they're not doing anything wrong. They're doing what, you know, we allow them to do. And it's our job to Get the people who are uh, basically lapdogs for lobbying companies uh, or lobbyists and get people who have some integrity to the people elected so that they can write laws that are um, for the people. Just a comment.
2: Thank you so much for that comment. Also, Joanne writes, the Medicare Part D plans do not hold a candle to the health care plans I had while I was employed. The cost is 10 times more per prescription than what I paid in the past. Can I get drugs from Canada? How do I know if they are legitimate? Do you know the answer to that, Dr. Emerson?
3: Uh Yes. Um, uh, it's very unusual to have um, counterfeit drugs uh, imported from Canada. <clears throat> uh, that was the initial claim when I wrote Overdosed America back in 2000, early 2000s. That was the claim that the drug industry was making, but it didn't hold any water. I actually called the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police and asked them if they had any um, cases where there were counterfeit drugs, and they didn't, even though that that was the argument. There is a problem with the uh, importing drugs uh, uh, on a uh, if you take that um, concept up to scale, because the drug companies know how much of their drugs are being used by Canadians. And if there were significant um, importation into the United States of drugs, where there's a great price differential, the drug companies would limit the Canadian supply to the amount of drugs that the Canadians are using. Mm-hmm. So that may be a, um, a solution one person at a time, but it's not a way to solve the problem of our out-of-control drug uh, prices. And to go back to what Demetrius was saying, um, 80 or 90 percent of Americans think drug companies charge too much and they're too inter- interested in profits. And yet somehow our Our government, our legislators, both Democrat and Republican, can't seem to tackle this problem. And it probably has something to do with drug companies giving uh, approximately equal amounts of money uh, to both Democrats and Republicans. And what we have here very quietly, I mean, we, we have this tragedy going on in Ukraine right now with a violation of democracy, but we have our own sort of slow burn problem here in the United States where Americans know they're getting ripped off by the drug companies and 80 or 90% of them say so when they're surveyed, but we can't get it fixed because there's so much power and money and influence in the pharmaceutical industry. And in order to get this problem fixed, this is an enormous problem. We haven't even begun to talk about the scale of this problem, but in order to get it fixed, it's going to take the American people to form up into a political activism of right and left of conservative and progressive to say, we're not going to take this anymore. You can't have a monopoly on medical science and charge us extortionate prices and not even release your data. We won't take it anymore.
2: And quickly, just a couple of quick questions. How do we stack up to other wealthy nations in terms of our healthcare? It's bad, I know. How bad?
3: Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up real bad. This is how bad. Americans in 2000, we ranked 38th in the world on healthy life expectancy. How many years you live in good health with uh, uh, partial health prorated. 38th in 2000. In 2019, before the pandemic started, we ranked 68th. So we're behind every wealthy country and many not-wealthy countries in terms of how long Americans live in good health.
2: And I think we and spend something like 1.5 trillion more than the, than the rest exactly of the That's exactly right. Nations. We're going to continue talking about all this with Dr. John Abramson. He's the author of a new book called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Repair It. Stay with us.
4: Welcome back to Forum. I'm
2: Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about the dark side of the pharmaceutical industry with Dr. John Abramson. He's the author of a new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. And I want to go to a caller. Megan is is talking about one of your favorite topics. Megan, go ahead.
1: Hello. Um, I am a uh, type 1 diabetic. I do not make insulin. My T cells decided to attack my beta cells. We all need insulin to survive. If I do not have insulin from Eli Lilly, Sanofi, or, or Novo Nordisk, the three biggest players in the market, um, I will die. If I don't have it within 12 to 24 hours, I will die. Um, the price, the, the formulation of insulin has not changed in 20 years. Meanwhile, the price has increased over 1100 percent because pharma has determined and understands that if we do not have this medication, we will die and we will do what we have to to pay for it. I pay thankfully with insurance, you know, I pay pay about $6,000 a year just for my medical things because I have to. Thankfully, again, because I have insurance. But someone that is uninsured uh, has to scrape together thousands of dollars a month to just survive. Meanwhile, Eli Lilly is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on ads for the Olympics Mm -hmm. and, and people are dying because they choose to price gouge. So this is allowed in america this is only in america if we were to go to mexico or canada like previous caller was saying those drugs are a different price because our politicians allow this to happen they choose to take money from pharma and then they choose to not vote. The California legislator had a Medicare for all, a CalCare care for all bill that they were going to vote on. And then they chose not to even bring it to vote because there were so many Democrats that would not vote for it because they get money from pharma. So these are facts. These are not like, oh, you know, business business needs to make money. Um Business has determined that they would rather put profit over people and the American public needs to realize that, that their neighbors are literally dying because pharma chooses money over life.
2: Megan, thank you. There's an amazing chapter in in the book, Sickening, by Dr. Abramson that goes into this in details. And we could pick it apart from many different angles, but just to stay on the human side of things, can you tell us, uh, Dr. Abramson, Alex Smith? story to illustrate what Megan is talking about.
3: Well, Megan, Megan has all the facts. Um, Alex Smith is uh, a young man who developed type one diabetes at age 24, uh, was well regulated. His insulin, his uh, blood sugars were well regulated on insulin analogs. At 26, he went off his mother's insurance and he couldn't afford what was going to be $1,300 a month in uh, insulin and, and and diabetic supplies. He started rationing his dose and he was dead in three weeks. And Megan has the story <clears throat> exactly right. Uh, the insulins in Canada cost uh, almost a 10th, as uh, uh, almost as little as a 10th as much as the insulins in the United States. But there's a key issue here, Megan, that gets lost in all that you said that's correct is that the insulin analogs cost about $5,200 a year in, in the United States. The previous generation of bioengineered insulin was recombinant human insulin, and that costs about less than $500 a year. American doctors switched their diabetic patients, type 1 and type 2 diabetic patients, from recombinant human insulin to insulin analogs. But there is not solid evidence, certainly for type 2 diabetics and not quite for type 1 diabetics, that the insulin, insulin analogs actually provide better clinical outcomes than the recombinant human insulin.
2: They're just, so more, they're the, just a more advanced technology, correct? They're just sort of marketed now, as, you know, yeah, because anyways, go ahead. They,
3: yes leslie you're exactly right they're, they're an innovation in insulin but the innovation is a business concept innovation means that you can replace the current products that are on the market with new products that are on the market but it doesn't mean they're better products and the cochrane reviews of the insulin analogs don't show superiority superiority over the recombinant human insulins now that's definitely true for type 2 diabetics for type 1 diabetics it is possible that it is somewhat easier to manage um, your blood sugar control with the insulin analogs, but it's only a little bit better, and it's certainly not five or forty-five hundred dollars better. So all the problems that Megan summarized elegantly are there, and the doctors don't know that the insulin analogs are, if anything, a very small increment better. Than the recombinant human insulins.
2: And how many people like Alec, because of these prices are so high, ration their drugs?
3: Gee, I, I forget the exact number, but it it's high. It's I I think in at the Yale-New Haven diabetes uh clinic clinic, a quarter of people uh with type 1 diabetes were rationing their drugs. <clears throat> so One out when of we four. say that one out of four. And when we so when we say, look, America has the best healthcare because people can get insulin analogs, um, and those are the best drugs, we're not taking into account that a quarter of the people can't afford it and they're not getting the right dose of insulin, and they would do far better on the less expensive insulin. And and to make matters worse, <clears throat> uh, the best, excuse me. <clears throat> The guidelines that are federally funded, the United States uh, Preventive Screening Task Force guidelines, that make recommendations about these kinds of issues uh, without conflicts of interest, they are not allowed to take cost into account. And the American Diabetes Association and the American Association uh, of Clinical Endocrinologists, they, uh, they make recommendations about standards of care for diabetes but they have tended to support the insulin analogs, which probably has something to do with the fact that they take money from the manufacturers.
2: Oof.
3: So we, we don't have a system in the United States. We're unique in not having a system that independently analyzes the clinical value of drugs and the cost effectiveness of drugs so people can get the best drugs for reasonable prices.
2: Well, Chris writes, people forget that it is our money, whether we pay at the pharmacy or through our taxes. As a senior, it is disheartening seeing pharma, armaments, banks, corporate construction and farms, etc. getting obscenely wealthy while the 99% have no access to meaningful health care, education, housing, and work. And Susan writes, what role, if any, did the decision to allow direct marketing by pharmaceutical companies play in this debacle? Is it just a symptom of the problem or did it contribute? What do you think?
3: I think it's both. Uh, um, unfortunately, uh, the lawyers who know tell me that uh, drug advertising is here to stay, that it's uh, included in the free speech rights of our Constitution. <clears throat> but. What's not included in our constitution is the right of drug companies to use manipulative advertising that leaves people with emotional um, feelings about a drug instead of the facts about a drug. So, for example, staying on the theme of um, diabetes, for type 2 diabetes, there's a drug called trulicity. Um, It is injectable. Uh, it does not control blood sugar any better than metformin, which costs I think a hundred and seventieth as much. Four dollars a month instead of um oh uh six hundred dollars a month, I think.
2: Four dollars <throat> versus um, six hundred dollars a month, and it doesn't do the job better.
3: Well, it doesn't do the job of controlling blood sugar better. The drug company sponsored a large study, 10,000 people, 5.4 years, and they show that there's a very minor but statistically significant reduction in the risk of non-fatal cardiovascular events in people who take trulicity compared to people who don't, type two diabetics who take trulicity compared to people who don't take trulicity. But that study shows that you have to treat 323 people a year in order to prevent one non-fatal event, and that costs 2.7 million dollars per non-fatal event that's prevented. So if the drug ad didn't say that Trulicity's great and have all the happy family and frisbee catching dogs and all those things, um, and it actually told the truth that it does, Trulicity costs this much per year, and it does not reduce blood sugar more than metformin and 323 people need to take it in order to prevent one cardiova- non-fatal cardiovascular event and the other 322 people aren't going to benefit. If the drug ad said that and the true cost of the drug, then um, I think we could live with that. And I, I, I think that that wouldn't distort our healthcare system. So they- we're stuck with drug ads, but we're not stuck with dr- dishonest drug ads.
2: And, I mean, they would never do this, but really the evidence shows, and you talk about this in your book, that the best thing people can do for their diabetes is change their lifestyle. There's actually evidence that shows if you focus on diet and exercise compared to these drugs, that actually will help your diabetes much more than these drugs.
3: Um, Well, it depends on the situation. For type 1 diabetics like Megan, um, they need insulin. You know, they cannot exercise their way out of needing insulin. A healthy lifestyle is very important, but not. But for people with type 2 diabetes, a healthy lifestyle is the best way to prevent pre-diabetics from going on and getting diabetes. And even when people have type 2 diabetes, there's good evidence that they can reverse their diabetes and actually get off medicine if they uh, get back to a normal body weight and exercise normally. So type two diabetes is largely, not entirely, but largely a lifestyle problem. Um, And we don't emphasize that. If we go back to Trulicity, the drug company sponsored this huge study to show that there was this minimal uh, reduction in cardiovascular risk, but the drug company did not spend a few extra bucks and put a lifestyle arm in this trial to see if lifestyle was more effective than trulicity at preventing cardiovascular events. I, I bet on it being so, but we don't know that because none of the drug companies are willing to do the study.
2: Because they won't make any money. Uh, Jerry, That's let's great. go to you and Cupertino.
3: Uh, good morning. I actually
5: just answered one of the... Uh, uh, one of the questions I had, which was, I think that uh, I think that the drug companies went into overdrive as soon as they were allowed. They were, I believe, legally not allowed to advertise to consumers, and as soon as they were allowed to advertise to consumers, they just went berserk. Um, it might be free speech, but uh, any 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 ad that says you may be the one person—it's kind of like the lottery. You may be the one person in a million that this drug helps, and uh if that's the case, people will say, "Well, I must be the winner, so I'm going to ask my doctor and all of the ads say, "Ask your doctor I'm going to ask my doctor to to prescribe me this drug because it i may be the i may be the winner in the lottery so so I think that was a big part of uh of the the uh um, pharmacies, you know, pharmaceutical industry Again. going going completely berserk. Uh, the other is there was uh, someone who talked about Medicare Part D and the costs associated with that. Um, uh, Medicare Part D, you don't deal with Medicare. You deal with an insurance company which supports Medicare Part D. And uh, recently I take a drug that last year cost for. A ninety-day supply cost uh, through Medicare D Part D. It cost me twenty-three dollars um, uh, for a ninety-day supply, and that's a generic. Uh, this year, the same the same pill, same generic uh, uh, pill, same dosage for a ninety-day supply, instead of twenty-three dollars a month, now costs a little over a thousand dollars. So I went to an online pharmacy. Uh, it's called healthware, uh, healthwarehouse.com. The same pill, the, the same dosage, 90-day supply, plus free shipping is $33. So if I go to CVS through Medicare Part D, it's going to cost me a little over $1,000 for the same, for the same uh, drug uh, in the same quantity that I can get online for $33 and the, and the $33 for 90 pills makes a profit for this online company. It's not, it's not Medicare. Um, it's the insurance companies that deal with Medicare to support, you know, to supply the, the drugs.
2: Well, John, I'd love to ask you that. Why aren't insurance companies pushing back on these pharmaceutical companies, because they're the ones that are paying these enormous prices, often correct.
3: Mm-hmm. That's a good question, and uh, the uh, the answer I think is primarily that the insurance companies get paid cost plus, so they pay more this year, but next year they raise their premiums, and they uh, continue to um, th- their business continues. So the insurance companies want to maintain their patient bases. The, the number of subscribers they have. that's the value of their business. So rather than uh, being leaders in containing costs, um, they're leaders in trying to keep their patients happy so that they stay uh, using that insurance insurer. Um, but uh, Jerry, I want to go back to a comment you made uh, about the um, opening the floodgates through the advertising in part you're right but that was only one of several different floodgates that opened at the same time and by by making investing so much more money in advertising they took the attention away from the fact that the doctors don't actually have access to the data from the clinical trials that show whether these drugs are helpful or not so it's a whole surround sound program. It's not just one element of the of the uh, influence on the public and the doctors.
2: What do the pharmaceutical companies say? You've been in the courtrooms, you've heard their defenses. How do they defend all of this?
3: Well, um, you gotta go case by case and I'm happy to answer any questions. I mean, I was in, uh, in a federal trial Uh, where Pfizer got sued by Kaiser. Um, Kaiser, as you folks out in California know, is the biggest health uh, maintenance organization in the country, health management program. Uh, And Pfizer at the time was the biggest drug company. And Kaiser sued Pfizer for misrepresenting their data about uh, the drug Neurontin.
2: And John, I'm just going to say, we're close to the end of the show. So give us the, the shortened version. Okay, the
3: bottom line is in federal district court, Uh, One of the chapters in the book, I testified and the jury found Pfizer guilty of not just fraud, but racketeering violations. So the the drug companies may defend themselves, but when 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 we really get the data out and we really get a jury to hear it, um, oftentimes uh, the plaintiffs win.
2: In other words, in in many ways, these companies are just willing to pay the fines and keep charging ahead.
3: That's exactly right.
2: We've been talking about the dark side of the pharmaceutical industry with Dr. John Abramson. He's the author of the new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Abramson.
3: Leslie, thank you for interviewing me. It was wonderful.
2: The 9 O'Clock Hour of Forum is produced by Ariana Prail and Blanca Torres with help with with help, excuse me, from Dan Zoll and Grace Wan. Carolyn Smith is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our intern is Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kern. Kernan, excuse me. I'm Leslie McClurg. Stay tuned for another Hour of Forum, ahead with Marisa Lagos.